Today's program was brought to you by 100 Bogart Street, the brand new co-working space in Bushwick, Brooklyn. Learn more at 100bogart.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. It's Women's History Month, and on this episode, we'll be talking about our we'll be talking with our resident culinary historian Linda Palacio about high tech for history. Hello, hello, Heritage Radio Network listeners tuning in from 165 countries around the world, about a million listens a month. Today, they are tuning in to Tech Bytes, the weekly show on the Heritage Radio Network, where we talk to influencers and innovators in the food tech space. And today, I am extremely happy to share the studio with my fellow Heritage Radio Network host, Linda Palacio. And the funny thing is that Linda and I actually have our shows live back to back. So we are often hosts passing in the afternoon, Um, but we've never really been on the same show together. So it's really a pleasure to have her sitting in the guest seat today. It's my pleasure and an honor too. Thanks so much. She had to come in extra early. So she's (laughs) going to have a, she's going to have a busy morning. I was thinking about the month of March and it's Women's History Month and I really wanted to do something to celebrate that and in thinking about what we could do on Tech Bites, talking about tech and history and women and history and tech, I started thinking about who would be a good guest for the show. Maybe we would put together one of our roundtables and have a panel discussion. Who would those women be? And then I thought, we have a very renowned culinary oh. historian oh. right here, right? <laughs> well, renowned might be a bit much. Well, a bit you know, much, I mean, <laughs> you've been doing your show, A Taste of the Past, since the beginning. That's right. Um, I, your last week's episode was episode 292, wow. which is amazing to me. And a, a, a amazing, wonderful accomplishment. We're today at episode 131, just to give people some context. Well, that's, and that's great. Look, at I've, I've been doing it for eight years. I, it could have been a lot more than that, but... I skip a lot of weeks. I go on a lot of vacations. <laughs> but you record and air and yeah. all of that. Yes, so. I do. Yeah. So it seemed uh, it seemed silly to go further than our own shipping container. So Linda and I had a great conversation um, last week to kind of workshop the episode, talking about how influential tech is in the pursuit of history, not in just the pursuit of history and research, but also in the preservation of history. So we're going to get into that. I'm really looking forward to it. But before we get into high tech for the past, let's get into a little current tech. Today, our tech guy in mission control is Vitor Hirsch, who is our engineer for the day. Good morning, Vitor. Good morning. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm pretty good. I'm happy that it's sunny and it's a little warm. (laughs) Also, we have more... Uh, hours in the day. More hours yes. in the day. Yes. It's a little brighter in the studio. I feel a little more vivacious. That's so why I'm feeling pretty good. 
and happy to see you. Happy to see you too. Do you have an app for us today that you like? Yeah, well, continuing continuing with the theme of feeling good, I'm going to say the app for the week. My app is the 7-Minute Workout. Oh, yeah. okay. Which, you know, I you know, sometimes I skip a few days and stuff, but I it's it's nice to have a little app to kind of guide you through a simple workout. And uh, the idea behind it is that if you do at least seven minutes a day, at least you're moving your body a little bit. And that's better than nothing. Even if you have a super busy day, you still have at least 10 minutes to stretch or do things like that. So it's a good reminder. And is this a workout that you can do anywhere? It yeah, doesn't it's require special equipment or special outfits or shoes or something. Right. It's mostly uh, body weight exercises. So, you know, squats and push-ups and things like that. So it's kind of a, you don't need anything else other than, other than yourself. But then I guess there are some more advanced modes that you can engage. Did you work out today? Did you do your seven minutes? I actually did. Um, Good for you. Yeah. So it was pretty simple, but... Uh, you knew I, I was going to ask that, right? Of course. <laughs> but I, I did stretch and I did a little bit of that. Um, I've been trying to get back into playing soccer often so it's uh it's good to keep in in shape well that'll be good you can get ready for the spring when the weather starts to get nicer and people will start playing outside yep all right excellent the seven minute workout mm. fantastic linda do you have an app that you like right now i do it has nothing to do with food but that's okay neither oh absolutely no 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 i like i'm liking but i'm hoping that they're you know, upgrading their system a little bit is plant snap Plant snap. It's great because I, I have a country house I go to, um, especially during the spring and summer. And on my walks, I encounter a lot of trees and plants. It works mostly for bushes and plants, not trees. So much. There is a tree app. I forget what that's called. And all you do is take a close-up picture of a leaf uh, on plant snap, and it will identify the plant for you. That's amazing. I love it. Yeah. So it's good for curiosity, but it's also probably good for if things are... Um, like poison ivy or yeah, something. Or if you get an invasive weed or... that you're not sure, is it a weed or is it something I planted last year? <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah, it has a lot of uses. <laughs> Do you ever use it to forage? Um, uh, no, because I'm, I'm pretty much um, a non well, I'm From mushrooms, there's another app, um, mm -hmm. a mycology app, you know, but this, not for foraging so much. I do it more for... Enjoyment, Pretty, identification. you know, bushes and plants and things. Yeah, foraging, I, I kind of go for things that I, I that I trust. A couple episodes back, and this might be a nice um, companion app, we had a listener uh, give us a shout-out on Twitter that her favorite app was the Merlin Bird Identification app from mm. Cornell. Yeah, good. Which is supposed to be amazing. So you could be identifying birds and trees and plants right. on your walk. Yeah, I still use the um, the Peterson's Kitchen bird guide, <laughs> but of course by the time you look it up and turn to the right page, the bird is long gone. Yes, <laughs> and the book's probably back home. You're probably oh, yeah. not carrying the book with right. you. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have two apps today, and my apps are um, inspired by the different protests and walkouts and things that are happening this month and later this month that have happened, and um, there's a lot of that going on. There's also music festivals, Coachella's coming. Um, 
So there's a lot of times when we're out in big crowds in the world and want to keep track of people. Maybe you're a parent and you want to keep track of your child. Maybe you're friends and you need to meet up. So there are two apps. One is called Find My Friends, and that's for the iPhone. And it works really well. It just works with the GPS of your phone. You can allow people to find you, specific people. You can look for specific people, so you can kind of keep track of where everyone is and if you're going to you know, arrive at the same meetup place. If you're looking for something where you can have a group of people who are Android and Apple users, there's an app called Glimpse, which allows you to do the same thing. So those are really helpful, and I've used... Um, them in the past, although remember to turn it off, especially if you live in a place like New York City. Um, remember to turn off your location finder or make sure specifically it's only people that you select so you don't have some um, inadvertent maybe uh, situation happen. But find my friends and glimpse when you want to keep track of people at big events out in the world. Excellent. Mm-hmm. Like so on to... History. One of the first episodes we did on Tech Bytes, it was actually episode number two way back in January 2015, uh, was libraries, culinary archives, and digital menus. And I was really interested in doing um, an episode about how we use technology to preserve things. And you know, obviously books and microfiche and that kind of thing. One of the other pieces that we spoke about on that show was the amazing menu collection that they have at the New York Public Library that they've scanned so you can see pictures of, you know, the beautiful menu from 1890. But they're really difficult to search because they're just images. So the New York Public Library has engaged in this sort of public crowdsourcing project where they have people help them tag the menus, you know, what type of restaurant, menu items, you know, dishes, different things like that to create a way to start to catalog things and search for things. And I just found that absolutely fascinating how we can use technology to preserve older archival pieces that have almost no technology. Um, But then also, you know, going forward, we have all these things. We have Twitter, we have Instagram, we have digital photography and you know, now we have to preserve not only the items themselves, but the technological container that the objects sit in. And so then it becomes a even much more complicated thing. But that's been going on since there's been recordings and gramophones and, um, you know, ticker tape and telegrams and all those kinds of things. It's just the next evolution of it. So I, I find those things really fascinating. And, um, also today, we produce so much content. What, what are we supposed to save and not save? And what do we get rid of? And, and what's going to last or not last? So we have Linda here today. And you know we had a really interesting conversation about her own personal research, research sort of habits and life and what she has seen in terms of technology becoming more and more helpful in the historian field. Yeah, it's, you know, technology has been a great boon to people like me, who, you know, are always looking to the past and looking at, um, for citations or um, old texts. And you mentioned the, the menu collection. Absolutely fantastic. And Rebecca Fetterman over at the New York Public Library is in charge of that. I think it's still going on where they need people to help. I, I think it is too, yeah. but I, I will I will double check on right. that. Um, because, you know, ephemera, the, the, they would be considered, you know, ephemera in the culinary world. 
not just that they're beautiful and interesting to read, we learn so much. Learn a lot about the economies of the of the age when the menus were printed, about the dishes, the style of food people were dining out on, and it's just really incredible to have these things digitized. Um, and that plays along the line with a lot of other uh, books, texts, old manuscripts. Um, more and more of them are becoming digitized and put online, which makes research a snap. I'm, you know, we don't always have the time or the resources, the historians I'm referring to, to you know travel around the country, around the world, to go and look at these things in situ. I mean, we have to rely on um, getting copies in the old days, you know, the you have microfiche and, and, and actual Xerox copies of a, of a page or a photograph. And now we can just sit at our computer and, and do months and months of research within an afternoon. It's really terrific. And there are a couple of sites in particular. I don't know if you want me to, to mention a oh, couple I, of the... Yeah, I would love to. I've, I would love for you to mention the online resources. Right. Um, well, Google's, Google Scholar, so it's google.scholar, you can go there and you can get into a lot of different library databases. Some of them you need a pass, like Harvard Library, um, Schlesinger often, but there are others that are free access. Um, and and otherwise, you can some that are just online for for public domain. They have um, abstracts, citations, uh, copies of from the text containing the subject matter that you're you know that you plug in that you're looking for, and that's always very helpful for a quickie. And then you know what what book to reference. It's good on finding where things are mentioned, so that then you can go to that text and do more reading. Um, f- there's a there's an organization called Feeding America <clears throat> from Michigan State University, and they have it's the Historic American Cookbook Project. Oh, and they have digitized. Feeding America makes me think of a America uh, of eats. a hunger or oh, yeah, America right. eats or right. you know uh, some sort of organization that would be feeding people. Nah, but it's but it's a Historic American Cookbook Project, and mm, so we can see how America ate. <clears throat> how people who were cooking from these cookbooks were feeding their families. Um, they, I don't know how many they have online. They had, you know, they started out small and little by little have, you know, have grown um, to where they have, I'm, I'm sure, hundreds of, of books you, now digitized. Do you know, in the in terms of uh, the timeline, what the ballpark is for the first American cookbook or what's yeah, considered? Yeah, 17, that was Amelia Simmons. And that was 17, I always get the date mixed up, 1794, I think. Okay. <clears throat> and that is considered the first American published and American written cookbook. Wow. And so, and that is on, you can find that online, indeed. And there are also the NYU Public Library, and if you listen to my show, my next show coming up with the director of the library, uh, Marvin Taylor, the, the NYU Fails Library has an incredible collection of, in fact, it's one of the top collection culinary collections in the nation. And I don't even want to guess a range of guess of how many um, volumes and pieces of archival materials they have. But you can make an appointment and go there. Um, I'm going to find out more about how available these these pieces are. I don't know if that's a digitized collection yet. I don't, I'm thinking not. 
Um, but another one is the university. I said Michigan State University was Feeding America. Um, Jan Longone at, um, in Ann Arbor has she's one of my heroes. She, so University of Michigan. University of Michigan. Michigan's right. a big culinary history state, apparently. right? And University of, she has um, given her collection to the University of Michigan and. She works there as well, um, collecting, continuing to collect, you know, all kinds of, of culinary materials. Well, I suppose that's appropriate that the University of <clears throat> Michigan and Michigan State University have competing <laughs> culinary libraries right. because they're quite competitive in every other arena. <laughs> so that makes sense. As a historian yourself, I have uh, instantly two thoughts that come to mind about the digital libraries. One is... That's amazing that you can have access to all these things mm-hmm. um, at your fingertips and, and refer back to them and discover new things. And as they expand, it's just a greater and greater opportunity. I think that's really wonderful. On the flip side of that, does that mean that in the culinary history arena, people are always referencing the same books because everyone's using the same resources and it's the same books and syllabus and and notations that are online does it create a homogeneity of work interesting it's an interesting point that you bring all, up in, in certain from the same pool well there are that those are only a couple that i mentioned i mean and obviously people can travel around and go to private collections and private there are private collectors all over the country in fact you gave me a little hint that you know of one very <laughs> near and dear. <laughs> Your husband is a, quite a collector as well. But there are, it depends on the, on the period of time one is doing research. I mean, there are people who do research in you know, early uh, European history, some that do ancient research. I mean, so the, you know, you're, you've got a lot of different areas of, of research that people cover. And um, I would say, yeah, you get a lot of repeat, let's say, on the American scene looking for the history of, of some American books. Their manuscripts are probably now a, the new, the new uh, source and a wealth of information in handwritten manuscripts, which heretofore have not been available. What's and, the difference between a handwritten manuscript and, and, and a volume and a cookbook? And a, well, well, one was written by the author, them, her, him or herself, um, uh, in script, in, in, in pages that were then put together as a book. And there is a site that is now manuscript... Uh, you're going to have to post that online because I'm going to get the name wrong. Manuscriptslibrary.com, I think it's called. And they actually have the pictures. Of, and then we're, you, know, you're, you have to learn to read some of the script. It's often very hard to read. And but these are handwritten recipes. Colloquial and, English is probably right, very different today right. than it was in 1794. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> well, we are going to take a quick break to find out who the amazing sponsor is of this episode. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit, which means we keep the lights on and the mics hot exclusively out of the generosity of our underwriters, members, and grants. Stay with us. One Hundred Bogart Street is finally open and ready for Bushwick. One Hundred Bogart is a brand new, state-of-the-art co-working space that provides turnkey workspaces, including open layout desks, meeting spaces, and furnished private offices. 
Members have access to top-notch amenities such as custom furniture, high-speed internet, spacious kitchenettes with coffee and tea, printers, scanners, and much more. Alongside their professional work environment, 100 Bogart also provides exclusive educational programming for any curious entrepreneur. Heritage Radio Network has made their new office home at 100 Bogart and will host many events there in the future. For more information about their co-working space, visit 100bogart.com and become a member to network, create, and educate. Well, if you're just joining us and you're wondering what the hell you clicked on, this is Tech Bytes, the weekly show on the Heritage Radio Network, where we talk about the intersection of food and technology. Is there a piece of food tech you would like us to talk about? Well, you should reach out and get in touch. We are very interactive. You can find us on social media at Tech Bytes HRN. That's Bytes, B-I-T-E-S. You can email us, techbytes at heritageradionetwork.org. We would love to hear from you. If there's an app you like, a food tech story, or if you're a founder or a CEO of a new tech company, get in touch. Today, we are talking with Linda Palacio, who is the host of the HRN show, A Taste of the Past. She's also the program director of Culinary Historians of New York City, and she has been working in the culinary history space for a bit of time. A long time. Long time. You can find her on social media at Linda Palacio. That's L-I-N-D-A-P-E-L-A-C-C-I-O. And again, her show is A Taste of the Past. It is live on Thursdays at noon, right after this one. But otherwise, if you can't catch her live, you can find her on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and Spotify, along with all the other Heritage Radio shows. Linda and I are talking about tech, primarily digital tech, how... Scannability and the internet have really opened up libraries around the world to culinary historians and, and other people interested in taking a look at these archives. And we were talking about if, you know, the resources being the same, if that creates redundancy. I would also ask a question of because something is online, are there ever issues of authenticity? I mean, we sort of live in an increasingly skeptical world about what we see online. There are some oh, people who absolutely. say, well, absolutely. I saw it online, so it must yeah. be true. But now it's almost the inverse sometimes. Well, if I saw it online, I might be skeptical, skeptical if it's right. actually a true thing or not. Sometimes Wikipedia can be Wikipedia. <laughs> you have to watch out for that. Because Oh, yeah. Um, if you, and my, and, and I'm, glad you brought that up because people ask me a lot of times how do you research things where do you go you know what are your sources and I just always say beware of you know going on uh, certain sites or you know just taking things uh, as they're written uh, you know for for being well sourced the sites that I was talking about where there are old texts scanned these are original published works of you know recipes so that you can you know those are authentic um, from the university sites, so yeah, it's uh, you have to be careful on that one. It's always good to contact a library, and the university libraries usually all have very good collections of of culinary sources. And I still like to hold books in my hand. Some of the old ones you can't do that. I know, I understand. Well, I was going to ask you. I mean, obviously, the convenience and the excitement of being able to discover an entire library somewhere that you can sort of trawl through at your leisure is right. wonderful. But when you're, you know, working on something, 
Is that as good as, as you say, holding the object in your hand or seeing the pages in front of you? What, what elementally can you learn or glean from the physical object that you cannot from the digital version? Uh, that is, well, that, you know, art's in the eye of the beholder. But, I mean, it, it, it's difficult if you're looking, depends what you're researching, if you're looking for the provenance of a particular ingredient or, you know, or, or an era, when did, when was this first, when did they first start using this in, you know, in, in cooking and food? Um, I, you know, traveling back and forth online or in texts in libraries, it's, it, pretty much equal. But when you are researching a particular person in history, I mean, to have that book in your hands, I mean, that could, that's, that's, uh, there's a lot, it just gives you a feeling uh, hard to, hard to articulate. It, it just gives you, I think, a, um, there's a reverence um, for that period of time, especially if the, if the book is perhaps it's going to be in old and it's going to be in older condition. Um, for me, even older, early American cookbooks from the early 20th century, um, often you'll find, if you find these at, at old sales or sellers, there will be um, marginalia. There will be things that people have, have written in the books, you know, little comments on a recipe or comments on, a, on um, an essay that introduces uh, a food item. Or, if you're lucky, stuck between the pages, there might be an old handwritten recipe or a clipping from an old magazine. The other day I found a clipping from um, a 1936 magazine from, I think it was Michigan, I'm not sure, or maybe it was, well, it was talk yeah, from Michigan. And it was amazing because it was, I mean, it was before, you know, the war got, the World War II got into you know, full battle. It was, it was, you know, percolating, and and it had that had an effect on what was written about the food. It, really interesting stuff. So having the experience of the physical object is often really one of the only ways to make a connection to the actual person who held it before. That sort of human, the human touch and the human quality of the dog-eared pages or the yeah, notes and things like yeah, that, which. Yeah. Maybe seeing something in a digital version kind of sterilizes a little bit. Yeah, it makes you. I think it's it's, you know, it's just sort of all the academic um, approach, and as opposed to more of the emotional approach of having it. Yeah. So, how do you archive your work? Do you archive your work or your uh, manuscripts? Is it on a computer? Know, Is it paper? Do you have notebooks? Are I, you preserving your own I'm, I'm culinary not, history? I am not. The work a, of the I'm researchers? I'm not a scrapbooker, number one. So that means, and that was, I mean, from long ago. So now I'm... Scrapbooking's very popular now. I know, I know. And I never was a scrapbooker, as a, even as a teenager. A lot of you know, teenagers do that, too. Um, so my, it's haphazard when it was handwritten and it was more on paper. You know, I, yeah, I do have some of those notes. I'm sure some notebooks have been thrown away. Um, but I would have to say that probably the majority of um, the better work is, is on the computer. You know, and by, when I say better work, more learned, I, you know, over the period of time, you know, you gain a, a bigger base of knowledge. Larger do, you, grade. do you worry at all about a crash or a virus oh. that's going to wipe it all? Well, I have backups, but and I did lose some years ago. I did, you know, have an incident, 
Yeah, and we all we just like we worry about as you mentioned earlier in the show that they're <laughs> are they going to have the machines to even read this stuff, you know. Do you ever think that you want to print it all out and just have paper copies of the things that you really love? I mean, there, there's so many um, illustrations and memes and sci-fi movies and things like that about, you know, the ap- apocalyptic end of the world, which is basically a technological end where we lose technology and electricity and we go back to the very basic, you know, pencil and paper. And if we lose technology, then the things that will endure are the same things that have endured, the tablets, right. the scrolls, the books. Right. Things like that. Do I worry about my work? No, not particularly, because majority of my work is pulled from already existing work. And so, you know, an analysis that I've done of existing works or something, no, but you're making me worry now, Jennifer. (laughs) (laughs) Sometimes I think about it in the context of my photos, and I'm a, a writer also and have done different things. And even in the context of, you know, changing technology, I have um, old home movies from when I was really a, a baby and a child that, you know, I have the actual film and there was an old projector and I had those films transferred to VHS tape and then I had the VHS tape transferred to a DVD and now I'm not quite sure, you know, DVD to the next thing. Um, and if there's a, you know, if there was a way to sort of print those out and have a paper copy, that's probably the best solution. Hey, I mean, you know, and you do a show about technology and you're going back to paper. I mean, yeah, you know, you, paper's you the worry. original, but you yeah. know, just because it's not new tech or emerging tech does not mean it wasn't technology. That's we right. had a, the, Linda and I were both um, lucky enough to be included on the Feast Your Ears 100th episode, which was about two weeks ago. Um, which is a hundred, a hundred episodes is an accomplishment when you're a host and a producer. And we talked about, you know, what the most important technology was and, you know, so far in cooking. And my answer was, I think, fire. (laughs) And maybe a close second is, you know, cutting utensils. So it doesn't need to be, you know, digital, next gen, you know, something futuristic for it to be technology. Printing and paper was a huge technological advancement when it first happened. And and so many of the... um, you know, in, in researching um, culinary items in particular, you think, well, who was doing the cooking? Did they know how to write? Did they know how to read? And then now we've learned that many of them did not. And many recipes that were, especially in the, um, talking, you were asking about America in particular, um, forget ancient history. We, we know there are only a few writers and scribes that, you know, put things down. But in American history, um, so much of the slave uh, cooking has we have that has become part of American food as well, and those were most likely written. Many of the now they're discovering more um, older texts, but many of those recipes were written by the the white homeowner, landowner, and so who wrote these and. Um, who was telling them? Who taught them? Where did they come from? So finding, you know, the origins of a lot of these recipes and foods, are, it's a, it's a scavenger hunt. It is. It could also be a scavenger hunt just in your own personal life. I think everyone mm. has a member of their family who's a great cook. Um, in my family, my maternal grandmother was a wonderful, wonderful uh, cook, and she just cooked 
the way she did. And, um, you know, I, one of my regrets is that I didn't sit down with her and write down so many of these things, the recipes that she made. And they're very simple, you know, um, um, Filipino recipes that are very common. And um, I'm sure I can find reasonable facsimiles of them and, and try and figure it out. But whatever it was that she did specific to her, you know, those little details are lost. So I think even um, writing down our own personal culinary history sometimes or writing down our own personal, you know, family or community experience is great to have for later. And you never know when you're not going to be able to, you know, capture that information again. Well, people think, you know, technology and they think, well, oral history, well, you have to record it. No, oral history can be written down in pencil, you know, pencil and paper. I mean, talk, just as you said, talking to somebody and but writing it down, writing down your own, of course, then you write down your own impressions, and that's, but that's very interesting as well. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have to be high-tech to be tech. Right. So I want to um, thank Linda Palacio, host of A Taste of the Past, for coming on as our sort of Women's History Month, our resident culinary historian. And we've been calling out real-life events for our listeners to participate in at the end of each show. And today we are going to continue our Women's History Month flavor. Coming up next week is a great event in New York City called Celebrate Women in Food. It is being put on by Food to Eat. The CEO and founder, Deepti Sharma, has been a guest on this show. She was on episode 121, our year in review, and she was also one of our women CEOs on episode 99. The event is taking place at the Food to Eat space in Manhattan. It's Tuesday, March 20th at 6 p.m. You can register RSVP for a ticket, celebratingwomeninfood.splashthat.com. I plan on going, so if you go, maybe I'll get to meet uh, one of my listeners in real life. Coming up in April is one of the big women's culinary events, and that is the Cherry Bomb Jubilee for 2018. It is hosted, of course, by Cherry Bomb Magazine and Radio Cherry Bomb. It will be Saturday, April 14th in the Seaport District in Manhattan. Headlining the Jubilee panels will be Nigella Lawson and Ruth Reichel. So already amazing, amazing women to hear from. Tickets are $350 and they typically sell out very, very quickly. So if you're interested in going, visit cherrybomb.com, C-H-E-R-R-Y-B-O-M-B-E.com and get your ticket. And that's all the time that we have today on Tech Bytes. Um, As always, I'm slightly... Sad and disappointed to be bringing it to a close because I know that Linda and I could just sit here and clatch until the end of her show (laughs) slot. (laughs) It's been fun to be on the other end of the mic. It's nice, isn't it? Yeah. It's somehow a little bit more relaxing, Mm -hmm. isn't it? Mm -hmm. Um, To just sort of be able to free will talk a little bit. That's right. Well, we will have to have you back on at some point to Tech Bytes. We are hosted and produced by myself, Jennifer Leutzi. We are engineered by David Tadashore and Vitor Hirsch. Our theme song is Nomad, a CPU track by DJ Uptown Nico. We broadcast live every Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time on the Heritage Radio Network. If you can't make the live broadcast, Come and download, subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and Spotify. And while you're there, leave us a five-star review. We'd love that. 
Thank you for listening. Come back and see us next week. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.